So I get excited around Easter time. I'm so excited today that I decided to up the outfit a little bit, wore some slacks instead of jeans. I, uh, you know, took a shower. Um, believe it or not, I even polished my Crocs this morning. I really did. Man, it's, it's Easter time. This is exciting time to get together and, and worship the Lord and study the resurrection. And so, of course, today is Palm Sunday. And so we're going to, we finished Malachi last week. We're going to 2 Corinthians after Easter, so this Sunday and next, we're going to dive into the resurrection and look at Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and the resurrection itself. So I invite you to grab your Bible and open with me to John chapter 12. I'll go ahead and give a disclaimer. We're probably going to jump around a bit. This will be our base text, and we're going to look at several different things today, but I want you to connect with me on what the meaning of Palm Sunday is. And so we're going to dive in to Palm Sunday from John's Gospel And just think about what's going on on Palm Sunday. Now, when I say Palm Sunday, half of you probably know what I'm talking about. And the other half of you are saying, what kind of Sunday is it exactly? All right, palm, as in palm branch, palm tree, palms getting raised in the air and laid down on the road as Jesus not walks by. How's it go by? Quiz? On a donkey, comes into Jerusalem. We call this the triumphal entry. So that means we are beginning what is commonly called Passion Week. So that last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion and resurrection, where he is in Jerusalem, he starts teaching, he does a lot of ministry during that week. In John's Gospel, it's almost exclusively all on Thursday night. It's that um, teaching series. He doesn't give a lot of this information in the other Gospels, but in John's version, we get that. But all of these stories, whether you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, have this triumphal entry where Jesus marches into Jerusalem, Seemingly in this triumphant way, only to be crucified on the Friday during that week, but then to gloriously raise from the dead on Sunday. We like to talk about victory around the time of the resurrection. Rightly so. We sing songs. If you get a church together and you start singing a song that emphasizes the crucifixion, people get moved. But if the resurrection comes up in a passage, in a verse, in a song, man, the the energy it surges. Every time we can't help it, we get excited when we talk about the resurrected Lord. He is risen. We're not just worshiping a Savior who is dead, who has just sacrificed himself for sin. We worship a Savior who is risen, who has conquered death, who has conquered the power of sin. So what I want to do this morning is take that concept of victory, that concept of overcoming, that concept of power in the gospel And make sure we're applying it in the right way. You see, Palm Sunday, in a lot of ways, turned out to be a letdown for God's people. I want us to emphasize exactly what that letdown was and how that applies to us as Christians today and how we think about the gospel. We live in a culture that has largely heard the gospel, or maybe we should say misheard, the gospel and applies it the wrong way. So with all that said, let's just dive in and make sense of what's going on. John chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 12, and then we're going to back up and think about the historical narrative that's going on. So let's, John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees we get Palm Sunday, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now let's stop there and let's think about the story that's happening so far. So twice in this passage, we get the word king. Who is the king of Israel during this time in world history? It is not Jesus, right? It's not Jesus. Pilate is, of course, the local ruler. Herod had been king. Before that, there's kings under Roman authority scattered around this region. Jesus is not literally the king. He's crucified for this accusation. Later on in the week, the king of the Jews. But what are they thinking when Jesus walks in Jerusalem or rides into Jerusalem on this donkey's colt? What is going on in their minds? They want a Messiah who is going to deliver them from Roman rule, from Roman oppression. And so let's think about the context of this verse that is quoted from Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, if you want to join me, let's just look back at that verse of Scripture from the Old Testament in its context. So if you don't know where Zechariah is, don't just flip to the Old Testament and look for it. Stay in the New Testament and slowly work your way backwards because it's almost at the very end. And if you find yourself in Psalm, um, we'll be done with the sermon before you get there. So just back up slowly. Um, right before Malachi, you will find the book, or Zephaniah, and then, that's Zephaniah. Malachi and then Zechariah. I was about to preach from the wrong one. That would have been awkward. Here we go. Zechariah chapter 9, we get this oracle. And this comes from the very beginning of this oracle. And I want to emphasize how this oracle concludes. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Sorry, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is our quote. It's been modified slightly in the New Testament, but there you get the idea is they're quoting from this oracle in the Old Testament. So let's think about what's going on in Jerusalem at that time. So we've talked about the Old Testament a fair amount, and let's just try to remind ourselves about the historical flow of this narrative. God's people had been in their land that God had promised Abraham. They had been there. They had been ruled by judges and kings. Then the kingdom split, and eventually God punished them and sent them into exile. And what was the primary sin they were committing that God was punishing them for? Do you remember, what, what do we call it? Idolatry in several forms, but specifically idolatry. They'd been sent into exile, and they returned home. And when we were studying Malachi, we emphasized this specifically. They had come back home finally. God had brought them back to their land. They'd rebuilt the temple. They'd rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. But it was kind of, eh. It didn't have that oomph to it, that... It had when Solomon built the temple and the glory, the cloud, God's glory in some physical manifestation descended upon the temple and they had this glorious experience of worship. It was more of a rote religious activity for them. The thing had come back. They weren't really in control of their own land. They were in Jerusalem. They were worshiping Yahweh, but they still weren't in charge. At that time, Persia was in charge. They didn't know there was going to be a lot of political activity globally before we get to the New Testament. And around the 300s BC, a very significant person um, who had a new 
army military strategy marched across the globe and conquered every people that came in his way. And who am I talking about? This is Alexander the Great. Now, technically, it was Macedonian. We're going to call him Greek. They would have considered him Greek at that time. And so this Greek guy marches through everywhere, including Israel, and conquers everywhere he goes. And so for a long time, there was Greek rule, not under Alexander, because if you know the history, he died and his generals split it up. But we would still consider that the Greek period. And so I want you to see something in this text. So think about Israelites hearing this prophecy saying, rejoice, you're, you're burdened, you're oppressed, yes, things are going right, yes, but rejoice, why? Well, because your king is coming, your king is coming, he's going to be mounted on a donkey, and then look at verse 10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, I'm going to remove your military power. Now, does that sound good or bad? Well, it depends, right? It's like, well, I don't know which way is it going. He means this in a positive sense. If you have no need for a chariot, if you have no need for an army, for a military fighting force, why is it that you have no need for it? Because you're at peace. Right, that's where this is going. So it's actually a positive statement. He's going to remove the bow. It'll be cut off. He'll speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so this idea is this Messiah... This king of Israel is going to come and have total victory. It says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. Now, how does this prophecy feel to you? Does this feel like the prophecy means he's going to literally deliver them from oppression. That's exactly what that sounds like. It'd be kind of hard to read it any other way, that the Messiah would come, the king of Israel would return, the prophesied son of David, who's to sit on the throne forever, is going to come and establish literal seeming peace. The prisoners will be released. They'll be restored double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim it's arrow. So Judah and Ephraim, if you remember, that was the northern and southern kingdoms. So he's made one of them the bow, and then one of them is the arrow. And so who's holding the bow and arrow in the illustration? God is. The king, ultimately it will be Jesus, right? This king is holding this bow and arrow, and what do you think he intends to do with it? Let go. <laughs> Release. And where's it going to go? See what he says. I will stir up your sons. Oh, Zion. Well, what kind of stir-up does this sound like it's a reference to? This is a military stir-up, is it not? I'm going to stir up your sons. I've got my bow. I'm pulling back the arrow, and I'm stirring up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. It's going to kill the Greek oppressors. Well, this seems to be a very specific passage. It's not some generalized concept of God giving victory to his people, he's specifically saying he's going to give them victory over the Greek oppressors. Well, it's interesting to talk about this on Palm Sunday because the palms in our passage have a direct reference to something that happened that sounds an awful lot like this passage. You ever heard of the Maccabean Revolt, Hanukkah, those things? Come from a period 
between our Old Testament and our New Testament. We can find some of these stories in the Apocrypha, First and Second Maccabees. But the Jewish people rose up, fought together, and oppressed, or sorry, kicked off their oppression. And what nation was it that was oppression, oppressing them? One of the Greek states. So there's a sense in which, at least in some way, this prophecy was literally fulfilled before Jesus came. Not fully, because by the time we get to the New Testament, has that kicking off of their oppressor stuck? No, because again, the Romans have taken over. But we see there's this expectation then that that reference to the king who is coming is going to deliver them in a literal, tangible physical sort of way. Now, often we think about the New Testament. We look back to these Old Testament scriptures. We think about the Messiah coming. He's not coming to do this literal, physical thing in Israel. He's coming to do a spiritual thing. But if we think about the Old Testament, it seems that every time there's a great prophet, a great hero, a great anything in the Old Testament, he's delivering them literally, materially. Moses literally led them out of Egypt. David literally overtook the Philistines. Elijah literally killed the prophets of Baal. We literally see these things taking place, and we have this literal passage that is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So just put yourself in the shoes of the people who are standing in Jerusalem holding up their palm branches. That palm branch to them, they're holding them in the air, that is a symbol for them of victory being at hand. Not just spiritual victory. They're talking about a literal deliverance from the problems that are going on in their lives. And if we think about it, this is how we have a tendency to share the gospel. What I want to set up for you this morning is a comparison between the expectations of Palm Sunday and what actually happened on Good Friday. So what's the difference between those expectations? Number one, the expectations of Palm Sunday are focused on circumstances. This is what they see. They have an Old Testament precedent for it. They have every reason to expect that the Messiah is going to do this, but they want the Messiah to deliver them from oppression. In the New Testament era, it's not Greece, it is Rome. Rome is ruling. Rome has established, and we use quotation marks here, peace, because it just means they're stronger than everyone else. And when you have the biggest stick, that's a form of peace. And they have that kind of peace in Israel, but the Jews are not happy with this. They are in some way permitted to worship their own God, which was unique across the Roman Empire. Rome enforced worship of its gods everywhere else. But in Jerusalem, they had this freedom to honor God anyway, but Rome kept stepping in. Rome kept defiling the temple. Rome kept appointing high priests. So how do you become a high priest according to the Old Testament? You have to be a descendant of Aaron. In the New Testament, you have to be in Rome's pocketbook. You know, there's a difference between the spiritual authority in the Old and New Testament. They want freedom. They are, oh, anybody seen the Nativity Story movie? The one where it's got this manger scene thing at the end. I love how that movie opens up. They're paying taxes, and it just, you can feel the oppression of God's people from the Roman Empire. They want deliverance. We say the same thing, right? Can you think of something in your life right now that you want God to deliver you from? You want victory over some literal physical problem going on there's some health concern some relational concern financial concern you want physical deliverance that's no different than these israelites on palm sunday holding up those branches and they're wanting to hold up that victory claim victory i mean we even have expressions for it in american christianity name it and claim it right that's what they're doing 
They're holding up their palm branches, but they're focused on their circumstances. Now let's go back to John 12 and let's finish this passage, or at least this section of it. And so we left off in verse 15. Let's pick up in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. The disciples, sometimes it seems like they're completely clueless at times, but let's be honest with ourselves. We would have been too. They had a better perspective than we have, so we wouldn't have done any better. But when Jesus was glorified, that's a reference to his resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had done them to him. So, verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Now, why throw that in right here? If you read the previous chapter, that's John chapter 11, that's the Lazarus chapter. That's where Jesus, he hears that Lazarus is ill, then he waits a few days to go make sure Lazarus is dead so that when he gets there, Lazarus is very dead, and then he can raise him from the dead. Everyone will see and believe the Son of Man will be glorified. Now, that's what happened in chapter 11, and that's for John's telling of the story. That is a crucial pivotal moment because because of that moment now the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus because they'd rather one man die for the nation than the whole nation have to die now they didn't know it at the time but they were actually prophesying exactly what Jesus had come to do but that crowd that saw Jesus come out of the tomb they started to testify and bear witness everywhere they went now can you imagine if you'd been there and Jesus said Lazarus come out. (laughs) And he literally came out of the tomb. I mean, you're either scared to death, or you're probably both scared to death, and totally blown away. And they're preaching this message. And so, why throw that in here? We'll see verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, so this is the Palm Sunday crowd, the reason why they came to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So, And John's telling of the story, the chief primary reason that the crowd is gathered with their palm branches raised for Jesus to enter Jerusalem is they've heard what he did to Lazarus. Now, if you've got a guy on your team who can raise the dead, then a military conquest doesn't seem real difficult. You get killed, he can fix that problem. If he can do that, I'm sure you probably don't even have to get killed in the first place. This is the kind of king we need to take on Rome. They are excited. They're not just focused on the circumstances. They're very worried about now. Now, this is why I emphasize that. Lazarus, what happened to Lazarus after Jesus raised him from the dead? Eventually, he died again. That didn't solve any problem whatsoever. It was a temporary fix, but he died Again, same thing going on here. We do this in our own culture now. We want Jesus to fix our problems now. We're way more concerned about today than tomorrow. We want Jesus to fix this circumstance today. We're focused on what's happening in this age, at this time, right now. And then let's go ahead and fill in the last one under expectations of Palm Sunday. That Palm Sunday version sees Jesus as a quick fix. Have we ever done that with the gospel? If you're not sure, let me give you three examples. One, I think, in our little subculture of Christianity, we're real quick to identify this first example, and we call it the prosperity gospel. When I say the prosperity gospel, you probably immediately 
think about those televangelists on TV who if you send in your seed money, you know, they got, you know, $5,000 worth of accessories on. And if you send in their seed money, God will bless you and they'll get another $5,000 worth of accessories, right? And because they need that new jet. And uh, they got to have a new jet. One day I'm going to raise money for a jet, um, a toy one. But uh, so we think of that. But we we sell the prosperity gospel in a much more, you know, down-to-earth sort of way. And a lot of times it happens, well, we say things like, well, if you tithe, God will always give back. And and it it sounded like this when I was growing up in church. It sounded like if you give 100 bucks, you can expect at least 100 bucks to come back. We hear stories about that. Somebody tithes something, and then God blessed them in a specific and direct linear fashion between the two. That's not what the New Testament promises. It's not technically even promised in the Old Testament. Of course, we want to go to Malachi, which is where we were two weeks ago anyway, and say the Lord says, test me and see if I don't open heaven and pour out blessing on you. Absolutely, he does. But can someone tithe and give and serve the Lord and then things still go poorly for them? Absolutely, they can. It's guaranteed. In fact, one guy came up to Jesus who was wealthy, and Jesus told him to go sell everything, give it to the poor. But we sell this message, we do, that Jesus is this quick fix. Raise up your financial burden, that's your Palm Sunday branch, and lay it down so Jesus can come through and give you victory in that arena. All right, that one's a little easier to see. Let's talk about health for a second. Well, we have this tendency to believe that if we just have enough faith, Jesus always wants to heal us. Let me answer the question in two ways. One, Jesus never has an immediate plan of healing you. That is not God's plan. I will guarantee you that right now. You are going to die, unless you're still here when he returns. You are going to die. Even if he did heal you, you're still going to die. That is not God's plan yet. He'll heal you later. We'll get to that more specifically next Sunday, though. We talk about the resurrection. That is part of God's plan, but not a quick fix. So we have this tendency to want to, especially in our culture right now, this is the new growing trend, is to make it all about health. I can make my life longer, except Jesus explicitly tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that you cannot. And it's wrong to even be anxious about it, because you can't make your head, you can't make your hair grow, you can't do any, you can't make your life longer. I don't care how healthy you eat, I don't care how blessed you feel like you are, how much you honor the Lord with your body, you could still die tomorrow. Right? That is not guaranteed. Anytime we start selling the gospel in a way that says, if you just trust Jesus, you sprinkle a little Jesus on this, and you'll be healthier. You know, it's like it's some of this Himalayan pink salt. It's like just take that label off, put Jesus on, and we treat it like that. In some form, anything that takes Jesus, and Jesus becomes a means for either achieving wealth or health, Anything like this, we're just doing the same thing Palm Sunday is doing. They're just raising up those palm branches and thinking that's the victory that God is going to give you. One more, and there's a lot we could do, but I just want to focus on these. The other is marriage. I've heard it said so many times, you just just put Jesus first in your marriage, that'll make your marriage better. No, it will not. We have examples in the New Testament of people who put put Jesus first, and that's why they ended up divorced. That's what a book or chapter in 1 Corinthians is about. That is no guarantee whatsoever. Jesus does not guarantee these prosperous things to happen to us if we follow him. 
That's not what's going on in this passage. Palm Sunday, see it, it's focused on circumstances. It's focused on right now, and we want Jesus to fix everything like he's the easy button. We'll just put a little Jesus in this, and everything will be fine. But that is not what Jesus came to do. So let's talk about the accomplishment of Good Friday. So we're going to skip most of Passion Week, and let's think about what happens at the very end. We all know how this story goes. Jesus is ultimately crucified, right? Why is he crucified? We could look at my favorite one to go to. It's the earliest um, statement from the early church. It's from 1 Corinthians 15.3. It says, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So think about that. The accomplishment of Good Friday focused not on circumstances, but on sin. It focused on sin. Why did Israel have this constant problem in the Old Testament of foreign people oppressing them? That was God punishing them for sin. God correcting them for sin. God is much more concerned about our sin than He is our circumstances. He's much more concerned about His worship than our suffering. Alright, so think about this. We by default, worship something. You can't not be worshiping. That's not an actual category for you. You're either worshiping an idol or you are worshiping God. There's no middle ground. You're always doing this. So if you think about Ephesians 2, 1, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So it describes that deadness in sin, and it gives us three categories. One is we follow the course of the world. So whatever course the world lays out, we walk down that path. Happily, we could think of Jesus' lingo in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the way is broad that leads to destruction. That's that course. We're on that course. But number two, it says we're all following the prince of the power of the air. So technically, that's a reference to Satan. And most of you would say, well, I don't think I ever got up on any particular morning and said, Satan, what is your will for my life today? All right? And that's not what Paul is saying you did. He's saying you did that indirectly through your worship of idols. So if I just asked you to define, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, so hopefully you get the answer right. What does it mean to have something as an idol? An idol is what? Oh, anything but God. That was a better answer than I usually get. Usually the answer is anything you put before God, right? And y'all know why that's the wrong answer. Because if you put God first and money second on your list of things you worship, what are you doing? You're committing idolatry, right? There's not God and then your other things that you get to worship. There's only God. So here's the thing. If we're focused intently on gaining wealth, we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping wealth. If we're focused intently on health, on making ourselves live longer, on having better bodies, better mind, better whatever, if that's your focus... No, that's still idolatry. If your focus is better relationships, I don't care what it is. If you're leveraging and laboring towards something, then your focus is not God himself. Jesus did not come on Palm Sunday so that you could take your palm branch and whatever it was and lay it down with guaranteed victory. Because your palm branch might be cancer. And God's will for you might be that you die of that cancer. Your palm branch might be that your marriage is falling apart. And that might be part of God's plan. It's how you react, how you respond to Him in that scenario. Your, your palm branch could be your children. Your palm branch could be 
any number of things. The only thing we get to worship is God. So when Jesus came and died for our sin, the focus was not on our circumstances. The focus was inside of us, focused on our sin. And so I want you to see a verse. This is one you should know. If you don't have it underlined, you probably should. This is Colossians chapter 2. I want you to see what Jesus is doing on the cross. So you all know that passage where he took the record of our dead and he nailed it to the cross. I want you to see the verse that comes after that, 2.15, Colossians 2.15. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So the cross disarmed the rulers. And what does it mean to disarm someone? Well, we're not talking about literally, you know, disarming, but to take Take away the power, take away the weapon, take away what these rulers and authorities have over you and what power is it that they have over you. It's sin. It's found in sin. Sin is where you willfully give yourself over to the darkness. You give yourself over to idolatry and through the cross that has been terminated. God has disarmed them through this work. So sin has been dealt with. Now you can honor God. Now let's move along to the next one. So the accomplishments of Good Friday. Focus on sin. Second, it's future oriented. We have a tendency to put everything on right now. We want to build up our treasure now. But Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, not to store up our treasure on earth, but where? In heaven. So we're storing up treasure for what is coming. We want to look forward to the future. So see this, Paul illustrates this so well. Um, Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. So you know Paul's background. He's the one who was the, the, the great Pharisee of Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was zealous. He was righteous, blameless even, under the law. But Paul takes all of that in Philippians 2, sorry, in 3, 7 and says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Because he wants to gain, but not something here. He wanted to gain something later. So Paul is laboring for all of this as though his labor here impacts what he gets later. So I want you to think about this. I know we're getting a little late, but this is a thought worth having. Do we all get the same reward in heaven? Are there degrees of reward in heaven? Is there... A level seven, you get to live like in the palace, and a level one where you're kind of out in the outskirts, but at least you're in heaven. At first, everybody's like, yeah, and then by that last example, everybody's like, oh, I don't know about that. Well, there's a sense in which we all get exactly the same reward, right? Because the reward's not a what, it's a who, right? But let let me be clear. Your reward in heaven will be uniquely tied to what you do here. This is said consistently throughout the New Testament. That's why believers have judgment as well. We're not being judged on whether or not we get to go to heaven. We're getting judged on the quality of the building material we used building the kingdom of God. That's what Second First uh, Corinthians chapter three is about. That we'll all be tried by fire. There will be gold and there will be hay. Hay burns up. You still get in, but you don't have that gold that lasts the other side. Here's why I'm getting into this. This is why it matters on Palm Sunday. We want Jesus to fix the problems we're dealing with today. 
Jesus wants us to contribute to the kingdom that is coming. So we had a men's meeting yesterday, and I had gotten up or stayed up basically all night smoking meat in the smoker. And so I was very disappointed when 14 hours later came time for the men's meeting, none of my 65 pounds worth of pork and brisket was ready. You want to talk about disappointment? Like It's like the world was going to end. And I had to go through the drive-through of shame and, uh, and pick up a bucket of chicken on my way to the men's meeting. And we had a great men's meeting. It was wonderful. There's lots of other good food. There was some stuff that was just unbelievably wonderful. And uh, anyway, got home, had to go to a wedding last night, so set up the smoker. There was one piece done, so I took it off and threw it in the fridge, but just really just had to get dressed and head over to you know, the other side of the bay and Finally, we get home last night. It's like 9.30, almost 10 o'clock. We get in. I've got some meat done. I set it all down. I'm talking, I'm, I'm disappointed. Like, if there's levels of disappointment, like my level, whatever the highest level is, that was a notch above. I'm just telling you, this is a big deal to me that my meat was not done. But then, it's late. I really don't need to eat anything else. I've had plenty of food. I look down at this, this the, the bark. You know, you know what I'm talking about, the bark on a, Boston butt that has been smoked, you know, for almost 20 hours at this point, and uh, there's a little flap there. It's kind of like half fat, half meat, but like almost all bark. I pulled it off, and it just, I didn't even have to like use pressure. It just came off, and I put it in my mouth, and a little bit of heaven happened. You know what I'm talking about, right? It was like all of the day's trial, all of the day's agony, all of my depression, all of it just faded away. And nothing else existed for a moment. It was, it, it was so clear. Anna turned around and was like, what? <laughs> like, I, I guess it was like verbal. I don't know if I was breathing hard, panting. I don't know what happened exactly. But it was just a glorious experience. Now, I'll tell you, I could not go to any place that sold barbecue and have the same experience, even if it was exactly the same quality. You know Why? Because my enjoyment of that one was directly connected to both what I put in and the suffering I experienced getting to it. Right? Your experience in heaven will be uniquely tied to what you contributed and how you suffered getting there. So see how the Philippians passage ends. So he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Use Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter as your paradigm for Christianity. Easter is what's coming. Easter's the resurrection. Easter's the glory that is to be revealed. And right now we identify with Christ most, not in victory over everything, but in suffering and everything. Jesus showed up and he came into Jerusalem and he marched in, not riding on a white horse of victory, of military might, not coming in in battle array, but rather on a donkey, on a colt, a symbol of peace. Stability. Jesus came in ultimately to suffer. And so the accomplishment of Good Friday, it is focused on sin, it's future oriented. But when we look at it through that lens, we focus on Jesus as 
as Lord over the pain, over the suffering, over the drama, over the agony, knowing that anything we go through right now is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Here's what I want to emphasize with you. Whatever that palm branch is for you, cancer, health, money, burden, relationship problems, I do want you to hold up that branch on this Palm Sunday. I want you to lay it down so that when Jesus comes through, he can trample it. I'm not saying he's going to give you cancer free. He's going to heal that relationship. What I'm saying is lay down your need for that to be fixed today. And trust that what he does the following Sunday, the resurrection of the Son of God, the power of God displayed, is going to permeate every particle of creation, including you, us who believe, are going to experience a joy unfathomable on the other side. And whatever suffering, whatever cross we have to bear, whatever palm branch I need to lay down, lay it down and let the Lord Jesus Christ have sovereignty in your path, in your journey. So let's have a good Friday mentality, not a Palm Sunday mentality.